0: Would you please remain standing this morning as I read from Ephesians chapter 5. You can be sure that no immoral or impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning church it's good to have you here today if you're joining us online i want to say good morning to you as well uh like many of you i took my daughter to walmart this week to pack a shoe box for our operation christmas child initiative anybody else do that this week show of hands anyone else wow i'm the only christian in the room today okay oh okay right there uh, campbell and i went to walmart and uh, we began to kind of meander our way Uh, through the aisles and and pick out things uh, for other people. And Campbell, although she speaks very well, still says a few things a little bit differently. And she had a few phrases that she would frequent very often as we were picking stuff up and putting it in the cart. She would look at me and say, Oh, Daddy, I think I would like that. Right? And so we're picking out toys and hygiene items and school supplies, and we're putting them in the cart. And and she just kept saying, "Um, Daddy, how about we get me some toys and she couldn't get it out of her mind that this trip to the store was not about her. Now, Campbell just celebrated a birthday. She just turned three and we had a party and lots of people came and and she got all kinds of gifts. Um, Campbell lacks nothing. Uh, she's spoiled and doted on and has everything she could ever need or want. Um, there is nothing that she needs that she doesn't have. In fact, she has far more than she needs. And, and really, we're at a point uh, in our lives as parents, Bailey and I, where we need to throw something away before we allow her to have something new. So all of her birthday presents went into the basement until we could throw away certain things in our house. She could not get it out of her head though that that trip to the store wasn't about her and even on the way home we walk in the door to show Bailey what we had got she kept saying daddy where are all of my things where are all of my things she is just so much like her mom it's unbelievable <laughs> the deadly sin we are talking about today is greed and if I'm being honest she's a lot like her dad a lot like her dad I'm going to do the preacher thing where you're going to turn to the person next to you and say something. Okay, so turn to your neighbor and I'll feed you a line. Here we go. I might be the greediest person I know. Praise God. It's good to start a sermon on sin with a full confession. Uh, The Apostle John says that if we confess our sins to one another, the Lord is faithful to forgive. So thank you for confessing your sin today. Well done. Greed is the excessive desire for more of something, specifically wealth or possessions but it's the desire for more with a specific bent. The bent is the belief that there is never enough. You can never have enough. Greed is the illegitimate child of both fear and desire. Fear is the fire that forges greed. That fear is fed by the haunting thought of of what happens when this runs out. It's a fixed amount idea that that there's this market cap on all the things we enjoy or that make up our lives, and if we were to distribute those, we would be left with less than we need. If we're to share what we have, well, what's left over for us? How will we survive? How will I have what I want if I give what I have? So this morning, we're gonna talk about greed, and, and I'll just use these three words to frame up our time. The first is pie, happy holidays, Pie, pursuits, and pipes. Pie, pursuits, and pipes. Let's talk about pie for a minute. I love pumpkin pie. Anybody else love pumpkin pie? Pumpkin pie, purse. this is my favorite holiday food, right? Not just Thanksgiving, like this, this is it. And if you're a pumpkin pie fan, really, pumpkin pie isn't even your favorite food. Here's how you like it. You love whipped cream with a little bit of pumpkin pie on top. Amen? Amen. So I, I love pie, and no one wants to be the last one to the dessert table because you just get the leftovers. We, we like our pie, and if, if you're a pumpkin pie person, how much pie do you want? All of it, yeah, <laughs> praise God, all of it. I preached the sermon on gluttony two weeks ago, that's in the rear view, so now let's really get into it. Pumpkin pie, if you're a pumpkin pie person, you want all of it. And pumpkin pie, or pie in general, is a really good way to look at our lives. Like we, if we think about everything that God has placed in our possession, it can be summed up in a pie, And how much of our lives, how much of our, our stuff, and our money, and our wealth, and our possessions, and our, all the stuff that we've accumulated, how much do we want of that? All of it, and more. In fact, we, we make these, the, the sole reason for our existence of, how do I get more pie? How do I get more pie? Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, coined this idea by using these two terms, scarcity and abundance. He said, all of us have this frame of mind. We either think in scarcity or abundance. And scarcity is driven by fear. It's a mindset driven by fear. There's a a reluctance to even contribute to the needs of other people. There's this overwhelming bent and overemphasis towards our own well-being that I need to take care of myself first. We've taken the idea of put your own oxygen mask on before you help other people way too far. This kind of thinking and framing up the world leads us Leads us to greed because the assumption is there's only so much pie to go around. And if I give away my pie, well, then I won't get any. Friends, can I tell you what line of business God is in? Maybe you've never heard this before. God has a job, He runs a bakery. <laughs> God's producing pies at an alarming rate, and He never runs out of them. God is a God of abundance, and there's too many of us that have held on to our pie for so long, believing that if this leaves our hand, then there's nothing left, not realizing there's a backlog, dozens and dozens of pies that God's been waiting to place in your lap. God's not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance, and God hasn't put pies in our possession so that we can hoard them, so that we can hold on to them, making sure we enjoy every last ounce of them. God has not placed pies in our lap to consume them, but to use them to contribute towards kingdom ends. It's this fear that forsakes us into greed because we look to find salvation through accumulation. The world is crashing in on itself, and my my only hope is to have more money, more power, more possessions than other people. And we might not ever say it that way or, or think about it that way, but that's really how we operate. Almost all of us are motivated by fear to some degree or another. And it's that intimidation that leads us to insulation. That insulation that leads us to accumulation, because in accumulation, we think we will find salvation. Most of us are either wrapped up in this insecurity or in idolatry. We're greedy people. You said it yourselves. I might be the greediest person I know. We're afraid. We're afraid of being forgotten or unimportant or insignificant or unlovable or undesirable. So we make all these gestures to insulate that insecurity. Look at this car that I drive. Aren't I important? Look at my house. Aren't I successful? Look at the clothes I have on. Don't I matter? Look look at my kids. Aren't I significant? All of this greed is driven by insecurity. This intimidation that leads to attempts at insulation, which breeds accumulation, all in hopes of finding some salvation. It's a common misconception that greed is a wealthy person's issue. Some of the greediest people that I've ever been around don't have very much at all. Some of the most generous people I've ever been around are wealthy. While there is a a certainty that there's a greater temptation towards the love of money when you have it. Greed plagues both the prodigal and the penny pincher alike. Greed cuts both ways. It's not just a sin that stalks those who have and selfishly keep, but also those who have not and want disproportionately. Desire is not bad. Desire is created by God and instilled within us. Desire leads us to some of the best things that we have and enjoy in this world. I have a wife because I had strong desires. You're at church today because you had a strong desire to be with God and his people. Desire is good, created by God and placed within us. It is not desire that is from the devil, but disordered desire. Remember, he deals in chaos. The devil cannot create, he can only corrupt. So just like other deadly sins, greed is a corruption of what is good. Desire that is disordered leads to our demise. Here's what the author David Mathis says, scripture locates the problem of greed in the inordinate affections of our hearts rather than in money per se. This means you can have a greed problem even if you don't have a lot of money. The issue is not in what you possess, but what possesses you. Now, biblically, greed is largely synonymous with another word called covetousness which typically craves things or possessions. Covetousness is the overwhelming desire to possess something that belongs to someone else. It is one of God's commandments to Israel. You shall not covet. And there are two things at play in our covetousness. First, we take from others. No matter the cost, we operate out of this scarcity mindset. There's only so much pie to go around. And if you have it, that means I don't have it and I want it. Fear drives that kind of future. Second thing we do is this, we take matters into our own hands instead of entrusting them to God. Instead of believing in who God is, God is and wants to be your provider and sustainer, and learning to depend on Him is the essence of faith. Greed disorders our desires to serve lowercase g gods. Greed dishonors God by saying that we don't find Him trustworthy to provide for us, Greed also says that we don't think God and His provisions are enough to satisfy the desires of our souls. Instead, we feed our appetites with things, more things, expensive things, new things. Greed makes a God of something other than God, which means it is, only, it is not only a breach of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, but the first. You shall have no other God before me. Thomas Aquinas says this, the desire for profit knows no limit. There is no salvation in accumulation. So let's dig into our text today. It's found in Luke chapter 12. You can turn there with me or it'll be on the screens. And Jesus is once again surrounded by a crowd and he begins to tell this parable after being prompted by a question. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, "'Teacher, please tell my brother "'to divide our father's estate with me.' "'Jesus replied, "'Friend.'" Who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he asked, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops, and he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Jesus says this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship toward God. You see how the story starts. The story begins with a question of greed. Jesus, make my brother give me what's mine, what I'm entitled to. Jesus gives an interesting warning to him. Guard against every kind of what? Greed. Jesus, what do you mean every kind of greed? Isn't isn't greed just greed? Like isn't it just its own thing? But greed is ultimately a reflection of what you and I believe about God. Many of us have a presupposed idea about what greed is in our minds. Greed is the wealthy man, the the Jeff Bezos, who has a voracious appetite to increase his empire, and so no matter the unethical dilemma in front of him, he will pursue gain at all costs. Greed is is the person in front of you in line at the church potluck who sees the limited portion of cheesy potatoes left in the pan and pays no regard to the dozens of people behind him, scoops them all up and puts them on his plate and walks on. That's greed, right? Of course, this is purely a hypothetical scenario. But greed is not as simplistic as we hope. No one is off the hook here. No one is entirely generous. We are all greedy. You said it yourself. Greed is a cancer that requires a cure, and it lives in all of us. We must kill greed before it kills us. There are all kinds of greed, and the Greek word here is pleonexia that Jesus uses. Guard against all kinds of pleonexia. It is used elsewhere in lists of vile behavior, such as Romans chapter 1 or Ephesians 5, which Daniel read as we began our time this morning. Greed is not a bad habit to correct, but a deadly disease that must be dealt with immediately. It corrupts, contorts, commandeers, it confuses us. Greed takes many different forms. There are all kinds of greed. Sure, it's the, it's the wealthy man with plenty who still pursues more at the cost of others. But it's also the young woman with an eye on her bank account affixed to a certain number, feeling insecure if that number isn't met. Greed is a regular giver to the church who refuses to be generous to their family because of a falling out that happened decades ago. Greed is a refusal to contribute towards the mission of the church and of God's kingdom because of a disagreement in philosophy. Greed is thinking of all your wants, desires, needs, and hopes before you ever consider a contribution towards something or someone else. Greed is having plenty and yet pursuing more for yourself. Greed is being afraid of the future and therefore never being fully generous towards God's kingdom. Greed is trying to control every possible outcome in your life by ensuring that you've insulated yourself against a down economy, a difficult diagnosis, or a devastating loss. Greed is not about what you have. Greed is about what you want. And there are all kinds of things that we want, don't we? Happiness, security, stability, certainty, pleasure, power, better, more, newer, nicer. There's no limit to the things that we want. In fact, most of us get one of these, not because we need a new one, but because there is a new one, right? At the end of the day, all sin is born from deceptive ideas. According to the author John Mark Comer, he says this, Deceptive ideas play to disordered desires, which are normalized in a sinful society. The deceptive idea planted initially in our mind is that we can't trust God. You remember how our story starts. All the way back in the book of Genesis, a woman named Eve is in a garden, a lush, beautiful place entrusted to her and her husband, Adam. And there's a serpent that slithers up and plants a singular idea that God is not to be trusted. That the reason you aren't eating from this tree is not because there's detriment on the other side, but that God is keeping you from something. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll become like him. God's keeping you from something. Ignatius of Loyola says this, that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And so, just like Eve, we take matters into our own hands. The word Jesus uses for life in this passage in Luke chapter 12, when he says, life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, is the Greek word zoe. It's a soul life, an eternal life. There are three Greek words used for our one English word, life, and they are bios, sike, and zoe. Some of you have heard me preach about these words before. But essentially, the biggest deception we fall victim to as humans is the belief that by accumulating more bios, or by more material things, we will attain zoe, a life that lasts forever. That if we have more of the material, somehow it transfers to the spiritual. And Jesus says, the life you long for is not found in what is material. You don't actually want bios, even though you try to accumulate it constantly. You want zoe and he tells a story to the young man who wants what's coming to him. It features a rich farmer who has three faulty philosophies. The first is this. This rich farmer forgoes wise counsel. Upon having an abundant crop, who does he consult? Himself. I'll say to myself, ah, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He forgoes wise counsel. He does not include the wisdom of others in his decision making. Number two, he forsakes the needs of others. He refuses to be cognizant of the world around him and rather only thinks about what he can attain. So he builds bigger barns. Number three, he forgets that life is eternal. He spends all his time focused on what he can accumulate and he sits back and he says to himself, I'll have enough stored away in my barns for years to come. And Jesus finishes the story this way. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. David writes in Psalm 39, 6, he says this, Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. Friends, there is no salvation in accumulation. We buy clothes we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. We buy because we want to be important, and greed robs the resource God wants to funnel through us before, it ev- before we ever actually receive it. Our premeditated thoughts are, here's where my money's going to go even before I have it. Here's how I can build bigger barns, not how I can empty the barn that I have so that no one is in need. Greed wrecks us by deceiving us, The essence of a good life is not a newer phone or a nicer car or a bigger house or a growing portfolio. The accumulation of newer, nicer, and bigger does not bring the life that you and I long for. Ultimately, we don't trust God. Talked to you about my daughter Campbell at the beginning, and she's, uh, she's just a wealth of sermon illustrations, so let's use another one. She was up at her yaya and papa's house in Kansas City, and that's Bailey's mom and dad, and she was, uh, they were trying to teach her how to say, I am a child of God. And so she was kind of working on that statement, and Bailey's mom looked at her and said, can you say that? Can you say, I am a child of God? And, and Campbell does everything pretty demonstratively, you know, lots of hand motions, and she'll, she'll project her voice, and all kinds of things. She said, yes, I can say that. And so she stands up and says, I am God of children, right? <laughs> Which is a little bit different. Um, it's not, you know, I'd have to consult the Greek there, but I don't think it's a I don't think the correlation is there. And that's cute when kids do stuff like that. It's alarming when we do it. It's essentially what we're doing. I am God. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to fill them so that I don't feel insecure. I'm going to attain my salvation through the accumulation of whatever it is. Here's how Jesus, after talking about the heart of the Father to care for his children, finishes his teaching on money in Luke chapter 12. This is verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. Some of us didn't want to come to church and hear that today. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. And your treasure will be safe. That's ultimately what our fear is about. It's ultimately what our greed is about. How can I ensure my safety? How do I have a life that lasts forever? And Jesus says, this is it. Stored in heaven, it's safe there. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Whatever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If you've seen the the series of movies, The Pirates of the Caribbean, you know that that Captain Jack Sparrow has a compass. Have we seen these movies? You know what I'm talking about? He has a compass, and that compass doesn't point towards north. What does it point towards? Yeah, whatever your heart wants most. And so it leads to some comedy or some interesting plot developments because of how the compass is spinning. It's really no good in terms of nautical wayfinding, but it it points towards whatever the holder's heart wants most. I don't believe that's just something for a fantasy film. I think we have that. We have something that points towards whatever our hearts want most. It's our money. Desire is not bad, but greed is desire that is corrupted. It's a disordered desire. Whatever you are pursuing with your money and possessions, that is the deepest desire of your heart, and you'll find your heart wherever you've sent your money. Randy Alcorn says this, if you want your heart to be in heaven, you got to send your money there first. I came across some interesting statistics this week about Americans and what we consume. The average American home has over 300,000 items in it. I balked at that as I was, yeah, get some, get some looks over there. I balked at that, and then I went home and walked through my house. You should do that today and start counting. You'll be alarmed at the amount of stuff that we all have. We consume twice as many consumer goods as the average American home just 50 years ago. And none of our basic needs have changed. The average home has tripled in size in the last 50 years. We're really good at building bigger barns. 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park a car due to clutter. Amen. of people with two-car garages only have room for one car. Guilty as charged. There are 7.3 square feet of storage space for every person in America. My guy Phil in the back of the room knows how much stuff people have. All kinds of it. We could sleep our entire nation in our storage facilities. The average American is $15,000 in debt on just credit cards. That's not medical bills, that's not mortgages, that's not student loans, that's just credit cards, average. And yet for all of this accumulation, well-being by every metric has been on the decline since the year 1952. All of the stuff that we can now have, all of the shiny toys that we now carry on in our pockets, life hasn't gotten better a lot of social research that has happened over the last decade or so, and it all points to this idea of teasing out the phrase, money can't buy happiness. It's not entirely true. It's not, also not untrue. If you're in poverty, having a living wage dramatically changes the state of your life. If you go through life without even being able to meet your basic needs, having the ability to have basic needs met radically changes person. And yet, there is a threshold. There is a threshold that we eclipse in which our happiness actually doesn't grow, it declines. And by every metric, by all the research out there, $70,000 a year for a household is as happy as you'll ever be. Happiness actually declines as you eclipse that figure. In 2019, Americans spent $95.7 billion, billion with a B, billion dollars on their pets. We love Fido, don't we? The annual cost to create basic disease control and health systems for the world's poor is roughly $30 billion a year. For the world's poor. That means that the face that stares back at you at the checkout line at Walmart that's begging you to donate just a dollar you would never see that face again. In fact, we could solve that problem three times over if we cared more about people than we do our pets. The amount of funds and checkable deposits, not stocks, not bonds, but money that people can get in their hands right now, increased from $19 trillion in February of 2020 to $39 trillion in July of 2021. That's more than double. Double. We are flush with cash. And yet, charitable giving has not increased. We're really good at building bigger barns. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Here's how Paul encourages Timothy, who's a young pastor in a place called Ephesus. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment you've probably heard that phrase before, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But why does Paul use the word evil and not sin? Why does he not say the love of money is the root of all kinds of sin? No, he uses a different word. He uses the word evil. Evil is more than sin. Sin is an action, but evil is an attitude. And while we are all guilty of sin, not all of us are evil. Some of us who cheer for the raiders, we're questioning, but if sin is lying with a prostitute, evil is the brothel. Evil sets the table for sin and invites guests over for dinner. Evil is a state of mind that says sin should be pursued. And where the righteous person experiences temptation but wages war against those desires, the evil person welcomes temptation and puts up no resistance. Instead, he tears down any barriers and creates no boundaries, Evil brings a darkness that is impossible to escape, and that's the kind of thing that the love of money does. It does not create sin. It creates evil. It makes our desires so disordered that righteousness isn't even on our radar. Billy Graham said this, that greed is probably the parent of more evil than all the other sins combined. Greed is deadly And that she is the mother of all kinds of wickedness. According to the scriptures, greed blocks love. It breeds death. It gives birth to lying. It introduces strife into our lives. It creates fighting and quarreling and murder. And we judge every financial decision we make through one paradigmatic question. And here it is. What's in it for me? If I give this up, what do I gain? What's in it for me? And that's why I love what Paul says to Timothy right at the beginning of the passage that we just read. 1 Timothy 6.6 6, Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. That's the more you've been looking for. So the opposite of greed is not asceticism. It's not eliminating everything from our life. It's deep contentment in who God is. Contentment moves me from seeing all that is in my possession as something to be consumed into a different category. This is something to be contributed. There's another pie coming to me after I distribute this one. We've used this statement from stage quite a bit over the last year. that God loves to pour into pipes, not pails. And if we are to be people who wreck greed before it wrecks us, we have to think about ourselves that way. A pail carries a limited supply there's always a scarcity, because the moment you dump some out, you don't know when it'll be filled again. But a pipe, pipe's not limited by supply, it's connected to the source. It's funneling everything towards something else. So there are four ways I think we can wreck our greed before our greed wrecks us. The first is this, that we should decide before the dilemma decide before the dilemma you can sit here right now and determine ahead of time or you can have a conversation over lunch with your spouse or at home this evening and say I am or we are generous people I am a generous person and so in the moment of need when someone's requesting something of you a new initiative a new opportunity to give or to be generous towards someone else you will always weigh that decision against the thing that you want if we increased our giving here we couldn't afford this new car If I give $100 to this person right now, I can't go out to eat this next week. But you can decide ahead of time, I am a generous person. And I believe God puts people in my path as an opportunity to be a pipe and not a pail. I'm poured into to pour out. Decide before the dilemma. Number two, find faithful financial friends. How's that for alliteration? The rich fool asks only himself what he should do with his more. I said to myself, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. We have to get better at seeking good, wise, godly counsel on how to steward our resource. You realize Jesus talks more about money than heaven and hell combined. And yet we don't talk about our money with anybody. We don't bring it up. It's taboo. It's off limits. Don't ask me how much I make. Don't ask me how much I give. Don't we come into a place like like church and we start talking about money from the stage and everyone just gets a little bit on edge. We don't talk about our money with anybody. John Mark Comer, the author that I referenced earlier, has a good close friend, and he says every year we sit down together, we share our tax returns, we say, here's how much money I made, here's how much money I anticipate making, then we show each other our budgets and we say, here's how we're going to use that money as wise stewards of what God has placed in our possession. And then they have another thing that they hold each other to, if they ever want to spend more than a thousand dollars, they have to ask permission of that friend or some of us were thinking, oh, heck no, techno, right? <laughs> that's so far from where we're at. But that's the fault of the rich farmer. He has nobody in his corner to give good, godly, wise counsel. And I'm, I'm super blessed to live close to somebody who loves me and who does that for me. And I can't tell you the number of times that I hear this statement, eh, Joel, that's kind of stupid. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Happened last month, and I need that, and so do you. The truth is, I'm, I'm the parent that Campbell gets her greed from, and I need somebody in my corner. Third thing that we can do is we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to be very aware of all the kingdom work that's happening all around us, in this building, in this community, across the nation, around the globe, we spend very little time thinking about the work that God is doing. And so we care very little about it. But we can intentionally put that on our radar. We can be invested in the things of the kingdom, in our prayer, in our thinking. We need to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The the fourth thing is this. We should be re-evaluating and reinvesting quarterly. For a lot of us who've been a part of church, we decided a long time ago to give a fixed amount, a fixed percentage of our income, and it's rarely revisited. And Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, he's talking about the generosity of people within the church, and he challenges the church in Corinth to recognize this thing, that there are seasons of life in which you have far more and seasons of life in which you have less. And so he challenges them to rethink how much they're giving because it's a reflection of what we believe about God. We can reevaluate and reinvest quarterly, just like you would with your financial planner to sit down and say, hey, how does my portfolio play out towards the future that I want? You need to sit down and have that conversation with Jesus and say, Jesus, have I sent my money where my heart will be? Reevaluate and reinvest. Make your chief financial ambition to be rich toward God. Jesus says, if you don't, you're a fool. There's a history of generosity at this church. There's a history of, of sending students to, to things like CIY and keeping that cost extremely low, of, of scholarshipping students who go off to Bible college and equipping them to be sent into ministry. There's a history of generosity as, as new buildings and structures have been built. And there is a, a long line of generous gifts in this place. There's a history of generosity. But I don't just want there to be a history of generosity. I want there to be a legacy. History happened, but legacy lives. Don't let the generous spirit of this church die with the people who are generous. Become the next wave of wealth toward God and his kingdom. History happened, but legacy lives. I want to close with this, this morning. It's an illustration that I I read from another author this week, and he talks about this, that obviously it's fatal to not inhale, right? You let go of all your breath and you don't take another one, newsflash, you'll die. But it's equally fatal to not exhale, that if you were to take a deep, big, deep, full breath in and hold on to it, and never exhale to take another one, carbon dioxide will build up in your blood and it will rob your body of the oxygen required to function. Brain damage and eventually death will follow. And Jesus, Jesus teaches us the wisdom of inhaling and exhaling, especially when it comes to the resource he's placed in our possession. And it goes like this, starts with an exhale, sell everything then come follow me. Sell everything, then come follow me. There's a balance to how we follow in the way of Jesus. Those who hoard God's mercy die like a person breathing in and persistently refusing to exhale. Those who stockpile the gifts of God are eventually destroyed by them And if we do not breathe out these poisons of greed and fear and self-reliance, we will surely suffocate. Viktor Frankl, who's a psychiatrist and an author, was a Holocaust survivor. He experienced the terrors of the Nazi prison camp Auschwitz, and he wrote about his experience that those in Auschwitz who gave away their food were more likely to survive. There's something that happens to us when we change our spirit towards being generous rather than thinking what can i gain we think what can i give there is no salvation in accumulation life real life zoe life the the life that we long for is not found in an abundance of possessions but in deep contentment towards christ who generously supplies all that we need and if you want to wreck your sin if you want to wreck your greed before your greed wrecks you. We need to seek contentment in Christ and give generously towards his kingdom. Let's stand and sing to him now.